Take one of the large black snails, rub it over the wart and then hang it on a thorn. This must be done nine nights consecutively, at the end of which time the wart will completely disappear. For as the snail exposed to such cruel treatment will gradually wither away, so it is believed that the wart being impregnated with its matter will slowly do the same. Welcome to The Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. I am Dr. Blake Mumford, Education and Research Fellow at the Institute, and I'm joined again today by Dr. Aaron Robinson. Aaron is a consultant dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and also an adjunct senior lecturer with the University of Melbourne, working in public and private practice. Thanks, Blake. As some of you will have worked out already, the topic of today's podcast is viral warts. The opening quote describes one of the many completely ineffective historical remedies for viral warts. Our guest speaker today is Dr. Mark Darling. Mark is a consultant dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute, specialising in male genital skin disease. He also has a public appointment at the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic and works in private practice. Mark, welcome to The Spot Diagnosis. Thank you for inviting me. Mark, to get us started, can you share with our listeners a fun, obscure dermatological fact that they might not know? Well, uh, my fun fact is not actually about viral warts themselves, but about one of the treatments. So one of my favourite therapies for warts is cantharidin solution. And cantharidin is an extract from an actual beetle called cantharis vesicatoria, which is also known as the blister beetle. And these beetles produce a secretion which causes irritation and blister formation when in contact with the human skin. And we use the extract from the crushed up beetles to apply to the warts, causing them to blister. So our treatment is quite literally beetle juice. I wonder what the manufacturing process looks like for cantharidin solution. Thanks very much, Mark. (laughs) Over the millennia, many fanciful folk theories have emerged about the cause of viral warts and how to get rid of them. The theories were wonderfully creative and some of them are associated with the darkest parts of our history. Viral warts were one of the many skin lesions identified as witches or devil's marks and used as evidence during witch trials in the 14th to 16th century. We now know that viral warts are caused by the human papillomavirus or HPV. For the purposes of learning and discussion about management, it is important to divide viral warts into two different subtypes, anogenital viral warts and non-anogenital cutaneous warts. So Mark, why is it important for our listeners to realise the difference between anogenital viral warts and non-anogenital cutaneous warts? Human papillomavirus, or HPV, is an extremely common virus that can affect both the skin and the mucous membranes. This can lead to a variety of different clinical manifestations depending on where it affects the body, although most HPV infections are transient and may not cause any symptoms. So there's in the region of 200 distinct HPV subtypes, some of which are responsible for causing specific forms of warts. For example, type 6 and 11 are most commonly associated with low-risk anogenital warts, and subtypes 3 and 10 are associated with plain warts found on keratinized skin. Most will be familiar with warts being common in children, and this is often when our first exposures to HPV occur. Given our immature immune systems at an early age, the infection will frequently stimulate warts on the skin. We often notice these on the hands and feet, for example. Inogenital warts usually occur in sexually active adults. They spread through close physical contact, and they're responsive to different forms of treatment compared to the common non-inogenital warts. They can be challenging to treat and frequently associated with a lot of stigma that can affect individuals and relationships with others. 
And HPV can also infect other sites, such as the oral mucosa and the larynx. Mark, can you tell us how exactly does HPV result in viral warts? So infection of HPV occurs through breaks in the skin or mucosa. It then hides in the basal layers of the epidermis, evading the immune system and infects the keratinocytes above it, causing them to proliferate and cause the hyperkeratotic lesions that we know as warts. Infected keratinocytes also constantly shed new virus particles and the time of acquisition of infection is very difficult to ascertain as they can have a long and variable incubation period, sometimes of weeks, months or even a year. There's lots of different terms used to describe the clinical manifestations of viral warts. Veruca vulgaris, plain warts, plantar warts, condyloma acuminata. What do all these terms actually mean? So Veruca vulgaris is a term used to describe common warts, and these are usually thickened papules or small lumps with a papillomatous surface. And these are warts we often see in childhood and frequently occur on fingers, toes, and sometimes around our nails. Plantar warts are warts which occur on the feet, and these are often called verrucas. They can be very persistent and sometimes painful, and when clusters of warts start to coalesce on the feet, we call these mosaic warts. Plain warts is a term we use to describe flat warts, and these are usually found in the face, back of the hands, or on the lower legs. Condyloma acuminata is the name given to anogenital warts, which means people who have HPV infection affecting the anus, peri perineum, external genitals, or sometimes the internal genital tract. So Mark, how common are viral warts and why do people get them? Well, first, I think it's helpful to distinguish between infection of human papillomaviruses, which we all get at some point in our lives, and viral warts. So being exposed to various strains of HPV throughout childhood and adulthood is normal, and usually our immune systems and indeed the barrier function of our skin and mucous membranes is enough to prevent a wart from occurring. Some of us, however, will then go on to develop viral warts. These can be large enough to be easily visible, but many warts, however, will go unnoticed. For example, they may be so small that they're not clinically apparent, or occur at sites that are challenging to examine, for example, the genitals. And this makes it very hard to estimate how common they are, and indeed why some people are more troubled by warts than others. It's time for the first skin tip of the episode. Infection with human papillomavirus does not always result in visible warts, but the absence of a wart does not mean that that person is not contagious. Mark, are there particular groups of people who are more prone to getting viral warts? Yes, definitely. The most prone group to developing warts are children, and this is primarily because of their relatively naive immune system, which will not have developed any resistance to different strains of HPV. The other group who are particularly prone to warts are those who are immunosuppressed, for example, organ transplant recipients or patients on immunosuppressive therapies, and also patients who have an immune deficiency, for example, HIV. People with certain skin conditions may be also more prone to warts, particularly conditions affecting the barrier function of their skin, for example, atopic dermatitis. Certain occupations can also leave people more susceptible to warts, for example, occupations where maceration or microtrauma of the hands facilitates inoculation of the virus through the skin, such as meat and fish walkers, or people in trades who work with their hands throughout the day. There are also situations where individuals may have a high exposure to HPV viruses, including healthcare professionals. And people with high numbers of sexual contacts, including sex workers, would also be at increased risk. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to first talk about anogenital warts, and then we'll talk about non-anogenital cutaneous warts, or common warts, as they're also known. Mark, can you describe for our listeners, what do anogenital warts look like? 
Firstly, as a reminder, most people with genital HPV infections are asymptomatic and don't have warts visible to the naked eye. And when they do occur, they're usually pink or flesh coloured or sometimes brown. And they're small papules, a few millimetres in diameter. They're usually multiple and often have a filiform surface, but can be flat or pedunculated and can coalesce to form plaques. Occasionally, they may become very protuberant and rarely begin to develop a cauliflower-like appearance. They are found on all parts of the penis, vagina, perineum, pubic area and around the anus. They usually don't cause discomfort, although they can cause quite rapidly in some cases. So Mark, how are anogenital warts transmitted? HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in the world and it occurs through close skin-to-skin -skin contact during sexual activity. What is your approach to a patient who you've just diagnosed as having anogenital warts? I like to highlight to patients that warts are benign, but it's important to be aware that HPV strains often coexist and the presence of one strain may indicate risk for infection with a more high risk or oncogenic strain. For example, HP, HPV types 16 and 18, which account for approximately 80% of cervical cancers. Women or any person with a cervix should therefore undergo regular cervical screening as per usual. It's time for another skin tip. It's important to remember that sexually transmitted infections hunt in packs. Testing for other sexually transmitted infections should be performed if a diagnosis of anogenital warts has been made. Anogenital wart treatments are divided into those that the patient can self-apply at home and clinician-applied treatments. Can you please take us through the self-applied treatment options first? There's two main types of topical treatment that can be applied at home, and no one treatment is superior to others. The first one is podophyllotoxin, sometimes called Wartec or Condylin paint, and this is a cream or a solution that's applied to the warts. It acts as an antimitotic agent, stopping cells from replicating. It can cause a localised irritant reaction, and it can be tricky to apply to some areas that are difficult to visualise, for example around the vulva, which can become quite irritated. It doesn't penetrate the keratin layer well, so it's not good for sites other than the mucosal surfaces. And secondly, imiquimod cream, or also known as Aldara, is the other commonly used topical therapy. And this activates immune cells to help get rid of the localised infection, and it can also cause localised irritation, and more rarely can cause systemic or flu-like symptoms. Both of these treatments need to be applied regularly and you have to follow the instructions and it can take a number of weeks for them to start to work. And what about the clinician applied treatment options? So cryotherapy is an excellent way to treat warts. Liquid nitrogen is applied directly to the wart and it's done for a few seconds with either a cryogun or a cotton wool tip and it causes cell death and it can also stimulate an immune response. It will often take a few treatments to work, usually spaced between three and four weeks apart. It can be uncomfortable both during the freeze and also in the healing phase. Ablative lasers can be used if available, but these can be expensive and sometimes other caustic agents are sometimes tried, such as trichlorocetic acid. For lesions that are isolated to the keratinized skin, for example, a shaft of the penis or superpubic area, cantharidin can also be used. However, it has to be used by quite experienced practitioners. Clinician-applied treatments definitely sound cooler. Cryoguns, ablative lasers, and caustic acids. Is there a place for surgery in the management of anogenital warts? Well, curetting or scraping off pedunculated or very thick warts can be helpful, and rarely for very recalcitrant warts or large warts, excision or debulking is indicated, but this is really a first-line option. So Mark, what are some of the red flags that you'd watch for in patients with anogenital warts? The main concerns are in patients that have warts that are unresponsive to treatment, individuals who are immunosuppressed, and those with the warts that are behaving in an abnormal way, such as abnormal growth or spread. 
The possibility of coexisting high-risk HPV subtypes that are oncogenic should be considered. If you suspect a genital lesion may be malignant, referral to a specialist is recommended. Biopsies are usually performed to exclude types of intrapodermal carcinoma, the early stages of cancerous transformation, such as penile, vulval, or anal intrapodermal neoplasia. And immunosuppressed patients are at particular risk of these conditions. Widespread warts may also be a marker of a potentially undiagnosed immunosuppressed state, for example, HIV. Inogenital warts are also uncommon in children. And when this occurs, a careful history is important to obtain and the possibility of sexual abuse should be considered. However, it's important to note that anogenital warts in children can occur out of this context through auto-inoculation. It's time for our third skin tip. The development of new widespread severe viral warts can be a clue to an underlying immunosuppressed state, such as HIV, hematological malignancy, or an undiagnosed genetic disorder. Let's talk about an Australian success story, the human papillomavirus vaccine. Australian-based researchers Ian Fraser and Jian Jiao were instrumental in the development of this vaccine in the 1990s. And Australia was one of the first countries to roll out a fully government-funded population-based HPV vaccination program. Mark, can you tell our listeners about the impact that this program has had in Australia? HPV vaccination has been rolled out nationally since 2007, initially for girls and extended to boys in 2013. Uptake of vaccinations in school-aged children in Australia has been amongst the highest worldwide. Initially, the vaccination was available as a quadrivalent vaccination. This provided protection against HPV 6 and 11, which are responsible for most genital warts, and also HPV 16 and 18, which are high-risk HPV subtypes associated with oncogenic effects, most notably cervical cancer. A non-avalent vaccination, which targets nine strains of HPV, replaced the original vaccination in 2018, and this covers additional strains of high-risk HPV types. The impact of these vaccinations is already being seen, and the incidence of high-grade cervical abnormalities in vaccine-eligible age cohorts of women are well documented by the cervical screening registers nationally. Reduced incidence rates of anogenital warts in Australia are some of the greatest globally to date. Over time, we expect to continue to observe a downward trend in these rates of cervical dysplasia, but also penile, anal and vulval cancers. We've covered anogenital warts now. We're now going to move to the cutaneous or common warts. Mark, how do you diagnose the more common garden variety cutaneous wart? Warts are usually diagnosed clinically and have characteristic features, which makes visual diagnosis relatively easy but sometimes we have to look very closely with a dermatoscope or a magnifier to clinch our diagnosis. Dermatoscopes are very helpful as warts usually have quite characteristic features when we look very closely. For example, they have quite a lobular structure. We can often see black dots in the center which represent thrombose capillaries. When we look at plantar warts closely, we can commonly see distortion or interruption of the normal skin lines and markings, which is helpful. And also depending on the site, they often have a papilliform or a rough surface. Swabs or blood tests are not helpful in diagnosing warts. Very rarely, a biopsy may be required to reach the diagnosis, and this is often performed to exclude the possibility of an alternative diagnosis histologically, particularly if there's concern regarding dysplasia. We briefly mentioned auto-inoculation already, but what are sort of the common areas that you might see this phenomenon? But as mentioned, auto-inoculation is where the warts, or HPV virus, is spread by the host from one area of the body to another. A good example is people who habitually bite their fingers. They spread the warts by traumatizing the skin around the fingernails, causing periungal warts, which can be painful and difficult to treat. They might even auto-inoculate onto the lips if they're very unlucky. 
Shaving with razors and other, other types of hair removal can spread warts across the skin, for example, in the face or in the bikini area. Other types of microtrauma, such as picking and scratching, particularly in children, can spread the warts from the fingers to other parts of the body, including the genitals. Repeated microtrauma on the hands or the knees, particularly in certain occupations such as tradesmen, can also spread the warts across a larger surface area, creating more extensive or very thick warts. Are there any other lesions that can resemble warts that you need to watch out for or any danger signs that people should be aware of? Yes, so other infections can sometimes resemble viral warts, particularly molluscum contagiosum, which are common in children, can be very widespread. Some infections can also mimic viral warts, for example, syphilis infection, which can very, very rarely cause a form of genital wart. A number of benign skin growths, particularly seborrheic keratoses, which are extremely common, can have a very, very warty surface. And there are some inflammatory conditions that can look like warts, for example, lichen planus or lichen nitidus. The other lesions that can resemble viral warts are dysplastic lesions. These include low-grade lesions like actinic keratoses, small patches of Bowen's disease and keratoacanthomas. Importantly, squamous cell carcinomas can take on a very warty-like appearance. And if there's any concern regarding this type of diagnosis, a biopsy or excision is almost always indicated. And the sort of signs you'd look out for in that situation would be continued growth and perhaps ulceration, is that right? Yes. Okay, so for the management of cutaneous warts, uh, we'll go through a couple of commonly encountered scenarios and I'll get you both to comment on how you might deal with them. First up, sometimes a particularly stubborn plantar wart can develop in an adult. What is your preferred treatment approach for this? And Aaron, let's start with you. Plantar warts can be challenging and very frustrating for the patient and the clinician and often require multiple treatments. Cryotherapy, ideally with pairing, is often used initially and many of our patients have had multiple treatments with this by the time they get referred to a dermatologist. Pairing and treatment with cantharidin is often used by dermatologists in combination with salicylic acid, which when painted on the wart causes a blister to form underneath the wart. This can result in resolution, although often over multiple treatments. Other treatments that can be employed include topical DCP, which is diphenylcyclopropanone. This triggers a contact hypersensitivity reaction to stimulate inflammation directly at the wart once patients have been sensitized. In more refractory cases, direct injection of the chemotherapy drug bleomycin into the wart can be considered. Lasers have also been used by some dermatologists with varying effectiveness. I agree with our suggestions. The only other thing I might add is for very keratotic and symptomatic warts, a podiatrist can also be helpful just for maintaining comfort by debulking. And just for the medical students who might be listening, pairing is of course debriding that thick sort of keratotic layer of the top of the wart so that the treatment can get down to the base of the wart. Is that right? That's correct, Blake. And what sort of strategies uh, can you use to do that? Um, usually that can be performed just very carefully with a scalpel um, in experienced hands. How about a child with multiple viral warts? Uh, let's start with Mark first this time. Sadly, cryotherapy in children is usually quite a traumatic experience. If warts are very extensive, it may not be a good first line option. As Aaron mentioned, DCP can be a very effective treatment. In children with multiple warts, this can be a good choice as it's a topical treatment that can be applied at home by parents. It's applied in a very dilute preparation every few days in accordance with maintaining the desired response. And it can take a number of weeks to work and parents need to be given very clear instructions of how to apply the topical agent. It can be remarkably effective, but it can also trigger a secondary exemptus response, which might need to be managed accordingly. Uh, and Aaron, what about you? 
For children with multiple viral warts, I quite like using cantharidin in this situation because it doesn't hurt to apply and it's usually very well tolerated by the children and their parents. It does, however, need to be applied in the clinic. And let's move on to our next scenario. How do you manage periungal warts, uh, which can be a bit of a problem for nail biters? Aaron? As with all warts, it's important first to counsel the patient about the factors that may be contributing to the spread or auto-inoculation of their warts, and in this case, try to reduce the trauma to the area. Periungal warts can also be difficult to treat, but can be treated with similar methods as for plantar warts. Cryotherapy can be very painful in the area around the fingertips, so topical treatments such as cantharidin or DCP are often preferable. In some cases, therapy with systemic retinoids such as acetretin may also be helpful to reduce the growth or the thickness of the warts. Final scenario, what about those plain warts, the more flat variety? What do you do about those? Mark, you first. Okay, so plain warts can be particularly numerous and they're common on the back of the hands and on the face. I like to use topical retinoids such as tretinoin. They are often, however, relatively asymptomatic and may not require any specific treatments at all and they often self-resolve over time. Aaron, anything to add? I agree with Mark that topical tretinoin can be quite helpful in this situation, particularly when they're on the face, as tretinoin is tolerated very well in this area. All right, thanks very much, guys. Uh, with that, we might bring this episode to a close. We hope you enjoyed it, warts and all. Thanks, Blake, and thank you, Mark, for your time and for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for having me. We'd also like to thank Joe Coblin, the Skilled Health Institute, we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. This podcast was recorded in Melbourne using Zoom in the time of stage four lockdown during the coronavirus pandemic. For listeners who want more information on the subject, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. That's spotdiagnosis.org.au. .org.au. For Australian GPs listening, you can receive RACGP CPD activity points for listening to Spot Diagnosis. For further information, please visit our website on spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We'd really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. 